en juegos clásicos donde la vida es barata. No seas tonto. Traer tu caña a siete y cuerdo y tratar de no ser en un montón. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from Castle Danger. There at the top of the show, we heard from Joe from the Hindsightless podcast, uh, doing, I think, my theme song in Spanish, but I am the typical ugly American in that I'm not at all bilingual, so hopefully he's not uh, <laughs> singing a song that's exactly the opposite. In old school games, life is precious. <laughs> I don't know, but thanks, Joe, for spicing things up a little bit, and admittedly, I am not at Castle Danger. I am live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. I was in Castle Danger, Minnesota, the coolest name of the North Shore of Lake Superior. And I intended to do a podcast from there just to, <laughs> just to say I was podcasting from Castle Danger, but it was so noisy up there at the cabin. It was right on the lake and the waves were rolling in on the that exposed bedrock and making a lot of noise. And I think it would have been just too much ambient noise even inside the cabin you could just hear the waves continually rolling which was pretty cool but would not make for a good listening experience so i have not been gaming nor have i even really been thinking much about gaming and i'm so far behind on podcast listening i listen to you know i pepper it in every once in a while over the last few weeks um And I thought maybe I'd just, because I'm so untimely, I don't really feel like calling in to a show to respond to something that they podcasted about weeks ago and have possibly moved on from. And I know they'd probably be cool with it, but I thought maybe I'd just podcast about that here. And then uh, at the end of the show, we had a few calls from... Uh, peeps talking about my last podcast uh, when was that a month or more ago two months ago where i was talking about giving up the loot but let's move on to uh, a couple of random topics so the first topic is something near and dear to my heart house rules in the context of kind of like house rules versus rules as written. Taylor over at Clerics Wear Ring Mail had done a few podcasts about that and got some calls. And, um, you know, I, I do understand the appeal in some circumstances of playing a game, rules as written, because you might be playing with some new people that you met online or at the game store or whatever, and having the rules is kind of like sharing a common language. And, um, you know, you, you might want to just have this shared understanding, although <laughs> within a rule set, playing rules is written, there's even going to be controversy. We all know that, right? There's people interp interpret writings in different ways. So even that is not uh, safe from consternation and frustration and uh, disagreements. But um, it's probably best in those circumstances to be playing a game where rules is written. And also you might want to just experience the game 
the gameplay that was perhaps intended by the designer, although, again, we also know that a lot of designers have admitted that they don't even follow all their own rules when they play their <laughs> their game at home. So I think that's kind of hilarious, too. Anyway, I'm, I'm not really one that treats the rules as gospel, as you all know. I think uh, most of us who have been playing the game forever <laughs> um, certainly have come to an understanding of many of the games that we've been playing forever and can alter the game and um, suit it more towards our personal tastes or a specific kind of feel we're going for in uh, in a campaign or a, a game that night or something. So I'm I'm all for house ruling. And here's the thing. If you are playing the game, quote-unquote, rules as written, well, a lot of these games, especially the old games, at least the ones I'm familiar with, almost all have a passage within the rules that basically says, make the game your own. These rules aren't gospel. If you let, want to change something, go ahead and change it. So if the rules themselves are telling you to house rule and <laughs> to change the rules, sounds like house ruling is rules as written to me. Another thing that comes up on a lot of podcasts I've been listening to lately is the idea of genre emulation. And that's something that I guess has probably been talked about as long as there's been role-playing games. I mean, like D&D trying to capture the feel of the Appendix N literature, even though Appendix N is so wide-ranging that I don't really think there's a whole lot in common between... H.P. Lovecraft and, I don't know, <laughs> and and uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, Solomon Kane novels or stories, whatever. They're so far, far afield that I don't think there's a whole lot of overlap between some of those things. But anyway, um, a more specific idea of, like, genre emulation, like trying to capture space opera, or swords and sorcery, or high fantasy, low fantasy, whatever, you know, trying to play a game that specifically captures that, and, uh, or makes you feel like you're playing a game that's like Blade Runner, or Aliens, or uh, Lord of the Rings, or whatever, and I don't know, I've, I'm, Again, I'm weird. I There haven't been many instances where I recall wanting to play a game that captures the feel of a book or the feel of a movie or whatever. Um, maybe because I think a lot of those things wouldn't make very good games. <laughs> uh, I don't think uh, film and story very often would translate well to a game that I'd want to play. But again, the other thing is, I'm, I'm not really interested in, like, heroic games. Um, I'm interested in more um, challenging situations and uh, 
dangerous situations and kind of thrusting myself into those things because I don't face them behind the cheese counter or raking my lawn or, well, I suppose driving to work is probably the most dangerous thing I do on a regular basis, but um, most of us don't really face these things, at least on a day-to-day basis. We don't go adventuring. We're not exploring, really. I mean, the most I get is walking around a state park or something, and I suppose you could get lost if you went off trail or something, but I never do. I mean, go off the trail. Um, so, I don't know. I And genre emulation, too, you get into this... Um, not purity test, but, you know, like the, just people have different ideas of what is swords and sorcery. Well, how's that different from sword and planet or swords and sandals, or I don't know. Um, if you, if you pitch something as a specific genre, I think you're going to have some, you're going to have to have a conversation about what you think that genre is. And sometimes I think we just talk to death about what the cam campaign concepts are or what our expectations are or you know what what we're all supposed to get out of the game that we kind of lose sight of the <laughs> playing the game I don't know all I know is that in general I'm not trying to capture any genre that I can think of so much because I don't know. I think most of my ideas for settings and adventures and are kind of a mashup of a lot of different things. There might be like film noir grafted onto the Black Company or something, or I I don't know. That's just out of left field. I'm the only thing I'm really would really be interested in capturing like genre emulation. It wouldn't really be genre emulation. It would be history. Like having a historical game where our characters were all part of some strike team and, you know, one of the world wars or something. Or a mercenary company during the Thirty Years' War or something. So it would be more of a coupling like a skirmish rules or something from a war game with a, an RPG those are, that's the only kind of real genre emulation I think I'm really interested in. And, uh, and as far as like IP goes, yeah, that again, I'm, there aren't many things that, uh, I'd really want to just have my campaign based on the Lord of the Rings or, uh, there are settings I kind of like, but I don't, I would certainly wouldn't want to follow the the storylines that were in the books so much. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Just rambling, just rambling. I think I've got another topic to talk about, but I also have to go to work. <laughs> this is the end. <laughs> well, it's the end of my vacation. I wonder when the danger comes, we will face it. Maybe Thundar. Maybe that's the one IP that I'd <laughs> want to play. Hmm. I did try doing that when I was a kid. Um, so the last thing that I, I've been kind of binging uh, some of the 
uh, Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Jason Connerly's podcast, and one of the topics that's come up a little bit here in the last month is uh, the idea or the concept of usage dice, where I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Use that as kind of this abstract die mechanic that I first saw in the Black Hack. I don't know if that's where it originated, but to uh, abstract kind of resource management things like uh, torches or rations, ammunition, those types of things. And when I first saw it, I thought it was kind of a cool idea. I've never played with it in a game, so I can't really comment on how it actually plays in a game. But the more I think about it, the more I think I'd only ever use that for something that's really uncertain, like how many, maybe how many charges a magic item has. Uh, maybe how long some kind of effect lasts that, uh, that the characters really have no control over. Um, it might be a good countdown for that, but otherwise I think it's just a mechanic looking for a problem that doesn't really exist. I've never understood how keeping track of a die, because you you go down like a step, so you might have a, say your ammunition as a D8, and then it drops to a D6, then a D4, and then you're spent. Um, rolling a one or a two lowers the, the die in the chain. Well, you have to assign a die value to all these things, to your rations, to your torches, or ammunition, whatever you're tracking. So why is that easier to note down than just ticking off how many arrows are gone or how much food you have left? And uh, I don't know. I mean, and it, it is kind of a, a given, right? That, I mean, I might not know how much food I have in my house, you know, like, ugh, how, how long could I go with, without having to go acquire food somewhere. I mean, before I get down to like the pumpkin pie filling in my back, the back of a cupboard that might be five years out of date. And it, is that still edible? I don't know. That might be <laughs> something you could use as a usage die. But if you're just going through the wilderness and you have your backpack, you have a finite amount of food. Um, and you... You know, I think it's just easier to track how many rations you have, how many days rations you have, and just tick it off. Now you could say, well, something might spoil. Okay, I have something like that in a, in a, as a hazard for, like, an encounter and event chart. Like, oh, uh, a camp hazard. Maybe your water skin is leaking. Maybe some of your food spoiled or vermin gets into your food supply or something. That's what I do. And they consume or, or spoil X amount of rations. I don't really, I don't know. You could certainly use a usage die. I just don't see much point in it. And more to the point, I don't see how it's easier than just ticking off arrows and why that's such a big deal. But with all of these things, of course, I'm just giving you my point of view, that doesn't mean I, everyone thinks the same way I do, obviously, or that I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa. It's just what we do on podcasts. We give our opinions about things. So there you have some of mine. Now let's move on to some calls that I got in regards to 
divvying up the loot. Yo, Rob, so splitting up loot. Yeah, my group usually does it in the way you mentioned, where if there's a magic item that'll clearly benefit one of the characters over another one, that character will get it. If there's an item that more than one character wants, uh, we'll talk about it, have a roll-off. And if someone's gotten a bunch of loot recently, you know, one of the characters that hasn't gotten much will get that thing. Um, so it normally works out. We haven't had too many fights or hurt feelings over loot. The other day in a game I was playing in, I was playing a spellcaster. There was another spellcaster in a group. We came across a magic item that would have clearly benefited my spellcaster the most, but the other guy was like, oh, I'll take that. And I was just like, hell no, you won't, dude. <laughs> I was like, let's roll for it. He didn't want to roll for it. So then we just talked about it. I explained why it would be better for me. And it worked out. Awesome, man. Anyway, keep up the great work and bring on that cheese. As far as loot goes, I think what you laid out is pretty standard. Equal shares for the PCs. You pay the hirelings. The henchmen get whatever you contract out, usually like half of the treasure or a percentage of the treasure, right? I like the idea of the level system, except it will benefit thieves, and I don't like thieves, so that could be bad. But when you have somebody die, if they come back in his first level, doing it by level makes kind of sense, because they don't need as much treasure. That first level fighter, until he catches up to the rest of the party, doesn't need as much treasure as the higher level characters do, and especially if you're in AD&D and paying for training costs, right? As far as magic items, usually whoever can use it the best. Usually you try to spread them out so everybody gets something before somebody gets something else. Although, I have been in games where the magic item has come, the value has come out of the cost. What I meant there at the end before I got cut off was that I have been in ga some games where just magic items are handed out, whoever can use them. In some games that happens, but the value of the magic item is figured in to their share of the treasure. So if you got something really valuable, you would get less gold, for example, you know, with your share. So I have seen that magic items not counted as part of the shares, and magic items counted as part of the shares, if that makes sense. But yeah, interesting discussion. I kind of think we're going to get a lot of the same answers, but maybe not. I'm curious to hear what deviations people have. And there we heard from Joe from the Hindsightless Podcast and Jason Connerly from the uh, <laughs> Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and his new venture, well, a collaborative venture, Cerebravore, which is also on YouTube, I think. Uh, and I think Joe has been uh, a, uh, I haven't, I've only listened to one episode of Cerebravore, sorry. I don't even think I listened to the whole thing. Anyway, uh, it's, it's more of a round table discussion on a variety of RPG topics. So yeah, that might be uh, something to check out too. Thanks for chiming in on the topic, guys. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I have a feeling what I outlined in that podcast about divvying up the loot was is pretty standard operating procedure for most, uh, at least D&D &D kind of adventuring parties. Uh, Jason brought up an interesting wrinkle there about the idea of uh, a magic item's worth in gold pieces. And for a game like uh AD&D &D, and I think some of the later versions of D&D &D too there there is uh, gold piece values listed in the DMG or wherever and uh and that could be kind of a useful thing to look at in in weighing 
the relative worth of these things. So if uh, if Joe the fighter has a plus three longsword and uh, Ed the magic user has uh, a scroll with magic missile, um, maybe the next couple of magic items that come down the line should be going to Ed the magic user because that plus three sword is is much more powerful much more potent than the uh than the scroll the one shot <laughs> magic item so and i think um i think players whether they're kind of into the whole uh idea of balancing things out or um um you know, evaluating the power of their characters and, and the items they possess. I think there is kind of, there's always that that element of fair play in the back of their minds and stuff. And I think we all kind of, if you're if you're at all well versed in a game system, you kind of have uh, an idea of what what items are are more valuable than others. And and there does seem to be in most groups I've been associated with and heard about there is kind of that element of fair play and what i'm more interested in or what i'm kind of interested in is if if anyone has played where it's more of a meritocracy kind of thing and if characters that have kind of like saved the day or single-handedly defeated some foe or come up with a the plan that everyone benefited from do they get like a bonus or or is it just straight like socialist <laughs> socialist uh mercenary company <laughs> anyway um thanks again for chiming in and uh joe requested uh he mentioned the cheese thing that I've been alluding to forever and stuff. So I'll probably start, I've, I've been really, you know, I, I've been wavering on what to do with a, the idea of a cheese podcast, whether to have it incorporated into down in a heap and just, you know, whatever, or making a separate thing. But for now, I'll maybe do some cheese tidbits every once in a while. And maybe I'll just as practice for something before it's released to the wild. Um, as a full-blown cheese podcast, maybe I'll do some uh, dedicated cheese podcasts on here too. Anyway, uh, here's some some cheese crumbs. Sweet cheese is made of these. A cheese board is not charcuterie. I've tried all the blues. Can I have more, please? Everybody's looking for cheeses. So credit to Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart there. Uh, sweet dreams are made of these. <laughs> and I'm plundering it for a corny, cheesy theme song. Uh, a couple tidbits here. A uh, couple things, misconceptions. We'll do a couple misconceptions that I get all the time. Standing behind the counter of the cheese case. And sometimes, especially the first one, I'll try to educate people on because I, I think it's such a, a common misconception among shoppers at the Cheese Case that I, I'd like to dispel the myth. Um, and the second one is more, you know, just me being kind of a pedantic 
cheesemonger, and I usually just nod and smile and say, yeah, let me help you out with that, uh, rather than correcting people. But uh, So the first misconception is, a, is about cheddar cheese and how there's this con- idea that yellow or orange cheddar is somehow different than white cheddar. And I think a lot of people, or the misconception I see at the counter is that white cheddar is sharper and or the fancy cheddar, whereas yellow is more the stuff you just put into grilled cheese or on nachos or whatever, and uh, um, or maybe is more like the kid's cheddar or something. And I think there has been like marketing behind these things where like for instance, uh, like Cheez-Its or something or, you know, snack crackers and whatever will release two things. There'll be uh, cheddar and then white cheddar Cheez-Its and somehow they're different when they probably, well, they might be using a different cheese flavor, but it's probably just one has more salt than the other. Um, but in the world of cheese, the yellow is just, or the orange that you see in cheddars is just a naturally occurring uh, coloration found in the seeds of annatto. And it's perfectly natural. It's, it's harmless. It's not like they're using red number five or something to color their, their cheese. But it's just something that, um, I you know, there's all kinds of apocryphal theories on how this came about. But mainly that um, the color of milk can change based upon the breed of the, the cow or the... Uh, the, the fodder that they've been eating and stuff. Um, sometimes a, a milk that's richer in butter fat will have more color to it. So initially it's thought that people were uh, coloring their, their cheddar to make it look like it was richer in butter fat, therefore more flavorful and stuff. And it just kind of... <laughs> It's kind of gotten out of hand. The, the weird thing is it seems like it's prevalent in certain regions more than others. So you see it in in the UK with uh, some cheeses that maybe technically aren't cheddar, like Red Leicester or Double Gloucester, um, and, and some cheddars too, but for the most part they're, they're cheddar, at least the ones I see, are white or naturally occurring. Uh, there might be like a little bit of an auto into it to give it kind of a gold hue or something, but you don't really see as many like bright oranges or vivid yellow and stuff like that. But in Wisconsin, it's a pretty big thing. A lot of, you know, like Colby is always orange and, uh, and the cheddars themselves are, are often orange, but you don't see that like with Vermont cheddars or New York cheddars or California cheddars. They're almost, all the ones I see there are, are white. Um, so, but it really has has no impact on the flavor whatsoever. It's, it's derived far more, or it's derived simply by the process of making the cheese and how long it's aged, the quality of the milk, the amount of salt, the cultures used, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that go into the factors for basically the flavor profile for all cheese. <laughs> um and you could have a 
wonderful yellow cheddar and wonderful white cheddar, and you can have crap white cheddar and crap yellow cheddar too. It just, it's, the color has nothing to do with it. All right, second misconception is the whole idea of, and I alluded to in the song, a charcuterie board. And it's confusion or confounding with a cheese board. And again, I'm just being kind of a pedantic jerk. And um, I'm not sure where this originated, but somehow everyone has in their head now that issue, or the customers that come to my case saying, hey, I, I'm going to be, I'm putting together a charcuterie board and for my guests tonight, can you help me pick out some cheeses? It's like, no, a charcuterie board is technically meat. So prosciutto, salami, uh, capicola, whatever, all these cured meats, serrano, lomo, um, iberico, they're, they're all, that's charcuterie. Cheese is not charcuterie. So a charcuterie board would just have different cured meats on it, maybe some bread and crackers, olives, um, pickles or something, uh, but mustards, whatever, sauces. A cheese board has cheese on it. And I'm not sure if it's somewhere, uh, Food Network, uh, food magazines, whatever, that have put forward this idea that charcuterie is, is a cheese board. But uh, I think people just like saying charcuterie. And once they've got that in their vocabulary, they want to whip it out and, <laughs> and show off the new word that they've learned how to say. And, uh, and you know, language evolves, right? So if, it's, if everyone's using charcuterie as, as synonymous with a cheese board, well, so be it. Who am I to say they're wrong? But technically, it's wrong. All right, that's it for now for the cheese segment of the show. And if you're interested, notes for masochists. After a little bit of 70s TV groovy music, I'm going to read out some of the uh, examples I have for where in some old rule sets, they're basically saying, do whatever you want with the rules. The rules are yours. And how maybe because of that, house rules are rules as written. But you're not interested in that malarkey. Turn it off now or turn it off after that groovy 70s TV theme. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap.
I've been a bit of a rules lawyer at various times in my game life, and I've certainly dealt with a lot of rules lawyers, not only with uh, tabletop role-playing games, but rotisserie baseball and fantasy football and all that. There's often been arguments about the rules and finding loopholes in the rules and all that. And there's a lot more rancor in things like fantasy sports that are much more competitive and where there might be money on the line and stuff too. But uh, um, I I had a few rule from the rule books I had close to hand. I just paged through and found these excerpts that I read below that kind of support my argument that uh, if you are playing the game Rules is Written and the rules themselves are telling you to modify the rules however you see fit, that house rules probably belong in a Rules is Written game. (laughs) But even if you don't buy into that, I don't think there's any denying that those games... Uh, are have the expectation that people will have house rules because they're telling you to do it. They're telling you to modify the game however you want. So perhaps rules is intended is that each game group is going to develop their own set of rules that uh, mirror their, their tastes and what they find to be fun and enjoyable, entertaining, engrossing, whatever adjective you want to use. I also think it's kind of funny that, uh, well, there's there's this matter of scope, too. When I think of the game itself, what, did it come out in 74? Is that when OD&D was originally released? And shortly thereafter, Gygax started releasing the supplements. Well, Gygax, Arneson, uh, Tim Kask, and, uh, um, oh, what's his name? Rob... Uh, name's escaping me. Anyway, Koontz, Rob Koontz. Um, I'll started working on things like, and Jim Ward too, I think. I'll started working on things like Greyhawk and Blackmore and Eldritch Wizardry and uh, Med Myth and Magic and stuff. So it, it was almost like they're releasing their house rules for OD&D. And then it's all kind of consolidated and codified and reworked and more things added to it for the AD&D releases, which I think started in 77 or something. So three years later, up to five years later, I think the DMG was 79, Gygax has released kind of the definitive edition of Advanced D&D, the TSR-approved D&D. And it was... The language in those books, for the most part, are kind of coming at it as this is how D&D should be played, and uh, going away kind of from the freewheeling OD&D thing, trying to kind of rein it back in and take control of it and um, more or less lay down the law because Gygax has had this experience and uh, now has kind of mastered the game, and this is what he's come up with. And that's five years also, trying to just set up a standard set of rules to use at convention play and tournament play and to kind of distance himself from the game groups and styles that he saw evolving um, that he didn't really like or approve of or whatever. 
But as a matter of scope, we're talking five years. <laughs> and think of all the time that has passed since then that we've all been playing the game. So I think we've all probably played the games enough to have a grasp of how to modify it to how we want. Um, anyway, listen or no to the rest of this and uh, see what you think. Um, but uh, yeah, I think rules is intended. Rules is expected. There's going to be changes. There's going to be house rules. And maybe now, because there's a lot more prevalence of online play and and, and play with people that you maybe aren't as familiar with as the 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 kids that you grew up going to school with or college with and spending all this time with you you knew each other you were friends and now maybe you're just kind of online acquaintances so i think my hunch is that there's more rules is written now to try and like codify and standardize it and just say nope we're playing by the book the or we're playing with these three books no supplements whatever you know but in long-term game groups and as as the game itself uh, was played for 30 years, I think house rules were the, the norm, not the exception. And it was the, the oddball group was probably the one that played exclusively by the book. So to me, rules as expected, rules as uh, intended was for groups to make their own stuff up. And... Um, and you could even make a case that house rules are part of rules as written. All right, see ya. The D&D game has neither losers nor winners. It has only gamers who relish exercising their imagination. The players and the DM share in creating adventures in fantastic lands where heroes abound and magic really works. In a sense, the D&D game has no rules, only rules suggestions. No rule is inviolate, particularly if a new or altered rule will encourage creativity and imagination. The important thing is to enjoy the adventure. Old Bay Basic. Forward. While the material in this booklet is referred to as rules, that is not really correct. Anything in this booklet, and other D&D booklets, should be thought of as changeable. Anything, that is, that the dungeon master or referee thinks should be changed. This is not to say that everything in this booklet should be discarded. All of this material has been carefully thought out and play-tested. However, if, after playing the rules as written for a while, you or your referee, the DM, think that something should be changed, first think about how the changes will affect the game, and then go ahead. The purpose of these quote-unquote rules is to provide guidelines that enable you to play and have more fun. So don't feel absolutely bound to them. As with the Dungeons & Dragons game system, this game is freeform and can be readily adapted by the individual game master to suit the needs of his or her particular campaign. There are many optional rules included in this booklet, and the referee is free to use any or all of these, or to add his or her own rules. The idea, after all, is if the game master and its his or her players to have fun. Let your imagination run free and recall the excitement of the spy thrillers at the movies or on TV. Read on then, and don't worry. That man in the trench coat across the room is probably one of ours. Probably. Alan Hammock. 
editor of the top secret role-playing game, January 14th, 1980, from the foreword of said game. House Rules None of the rules presented in this book, or other old-school essentials rules modules, are to be taken as quote-unquote gospel. If the players and referee wish, any rule may be expanded, altered, or removed. Such tweaks, tweaks to the rules are known as house rules. Every group will end up with their own unique way of playing, tailored to their particular tastes. That said, the rules have been carefully designed and very thoroughly battle-tested. Many groups will be perfectly happy with the rules as written. Beginning players are advised to play with the rules as written for some time before starting to change anything. From OSE by Gavin Norman, Core Rules, page 6. The three most important things to know about running a game of swords and wizardry are these. The rules are just guidelines. There's not a rule for everything. When in doubt, make a ruling. If you are a beginning referee and have never played a role-playing game before, it's a good idea to stick to, quote-unquote, the rules. For a few gaming sessions, just to learn how the game works. We have provided enough of these basic rules to get you started without having to make too many difficult decisions. But once you are comfortable with the basic idea of a role-playing game, you can start thinking about the optional rules, about creating house rules, and about adapting the rules. There's a whole world of fantasy out there waiting for you. Swords and Wizardry Complete, page 74. Above all else, D&D is yours. The friendship you make around the table will be unique to you, the adventures you embark on, the characters you create, the memories you make, these will be yours. D&D is your personal corner of the universe, a place where you have free reign to do as you wish. Go forth now, read the rules of the game and the story of its worlds, but always remember that you are the one who brings them to life. They are nothing without the spark of life that you give them. Preface, 5e D&D Player's Handbook.